1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
3: An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Aftermath. Today is a doubleheader. We're first going to be talking to Sal Mercogliano, Associate Professor of History at Campbell University, specializing in maritime history, about the ship that was stuck on the Suez Canal. And then stay tuned because we have a guest expert on the Lincoln assassination, Professor David S. Reynolds, author of Abe, Abraham Lincoln in His Times. But first, our 100th episode is right around the corner, and we're asking the Alarmy to help us get 100 new reviews by then. We still need 80 more reviews to meet our goal, so take a moment to rate, review on Apple Podcasts, and we'll add it to the tally. Or rate and review wherever you listen and send us a screenshot or tag us on Instagram or Twitter. Here's one of our most recent reviews that we got, and this is from Jay Louie Hula. Jalui Hula. Great show, five stars. I love this podcast because they embrace exactly what they are. No, it may not be 100% historically accurate, but it's still great fun. (laughs) Go into it with that understanding and you'll love it. Well, thank you, Jalui Hula. Thank you so much for all of the support we've gotten from the Alarmy. And remember, no more joy listening. We've got reviews that we need. Now let's dive right into our interview with Professor Sal Mercogliano. Hi, Sal. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Oh, I'm excited to be with you.
3: So, can you start by giving us a quick history on the Suez Canal?
2: Sure. Well, um, Suez Canal has been around since 1869. Uh, it was a joint British-French uh, kind of endeavor to go in. Again, one of the things they wanted to do was shorten the distance between Europe and India and Asia. It was really essential, especially during the American Civil War when cotton was cut off from England. They have a good supply of cotton, and where they got their cotton from was Egypt and India. So in a very indirect way, the Americans played a little bit in pushing through the Suez Canal. Uh, It's been a bridge between those two for a long time. Uh, There were two substantial shutdowns of the canal. One was in uh, 1956 during the Suez crisis. Uh, It was shut for a few months. But the biggest one, one that you've talked about before, was the one that was shut down in 1967 during the Six-Day War when it was shut for eight years. And that shut the shutdown in eight years has actually led to kind of the issue with the ever given today, because when the canal shut down for eight years, shipping industry decided if we got to go the long way around Africa, we might as well make our ships bigger so we can carry more goods. So in a very kind of strange way, the shutdown of the canal back in the 60s and the 70s led to ships the size of ever given today.
3: Now, why would they make them so big? Because in case they had to go all the way down?
2: No, it's all economy of scale. Uh, the idea was initially it was, it was oil tankers. But if you have to haul oil all the way from the Middle East to Europe or across to North America, for example, you are paying for a crew, you're paying for the engine, you're paying for the hull. And it just becomes an economy of scale, not to throw math into anything. But, you know, as you get the ships longer, wider and deeper, the volume of the vessel increases cubically. And so you become more efficient and you have to pay for actually less crew because you're not crewing three vessels, you're crewing one, and you're paying for one engine, not three engines, and it just becomes a whole lot cheaper to make vessels bigger because the transportation cost to move whether a gallon of oil or a container load of goods basically begins to disappear as the ships get so large as they are today.
3: And I'm assuming that you just pay one toll for it doesn't matter how big your ship is.
2: Right. Going through the Suez Canal, you do pay a toll and everything. There's there's a little basket. You have to have exact change going through. No, I'm kidding. You, you actually have to pay a toll. Uh, right now, the average fee for a toll to go through with your Suez Canal Easy Pass is about $700,000. Whoa.
3: Yeah, it's a pricey toll. It's almost as much as the Jersey Turnpike. Yeah. So how common is it? for a ship to get stuck on the Suez Canal?
2: Well, we've seen ships get stuck before, so it, it's not unusual. We've had an incident where a tanker got stuck about uh, a couple of years ago in it. Uh, we had two container ships back in 2016, 2017 get stuck. It's happened before. What makes Evergivens so unique is the size of this vessel. It is just tremendous. Since 2015, these vessels have been on steroids. They've just gotten you know so much bigger. Maersk Lines in, in the early 2010s introduce what they call the triple E class of container ship. There's really big monstrous things, 18,000 boxes, but we're talking about ships, 1300 feet long, 200 feet wide. They draw almost 50 feet of water. And, and the problem is when you make an error in the Suez canal, when you're a smaller vessel, well, you can back off, you can, you can get tugs to help you. Whenever given gets stuck, it takes an, an act of God to get her off because she is just so massive, 200,000 tons, just, just exponentially bigger than what we've seen happen in the past.
3: So what were some of the factors at play that led to the Ever Given getting stuck this time around?
2: Well, right now, one of the big issues you have and, and you know, who you can identify for the cause of this is kind of difficult because everyone's being very quiet because there's huge liability issues here. Nobody wants yeah. to say they're responsible because then they have to pay not just for the damage to the canal or the lateness of the cargo on board Ever Given, but potentially they would have to pay for everything that was late caused by the Ever Given. So they're very careful about not wanting to say anything. What it looks like and and all ships have what they call an AIS transponder, an automated information system. They basically transmit kind of like planes do where they are. And if you look at Evergiven's track when it came in the Suez Canal, a couple of things happened right off the bat. Really big ship she doesn't have a large margin of error in the canal. So she's gotta be right in the center of the canal. If she's not in the center of the canal, if she gets close to the banks, they have something called bank suction. And what happens is the sterns get sucked into the the, the bank. The the bow, which has a big, huge bulbous bow, it has this big, huge kind of nose on it. And what it does is it pushes the water out of the way, but when it pushes the water out of the way, it actually pushes the water to the side and, and that causes a problem going down narrow canals. And what looks like happened with Evergiven is, is immediately when she got in the canal, she was off center. She was never in the center of the canal. And it looks like that they made a couple of critical errors. Mm. One was the wind. These are big ships. This, is, this, this thing is as high as a 14-story building, 1,300 feet long. And so they had a windy day that day. They had gusts up to 40, 50 miles an hour. And so wind plays havoc on ships that, that big. They, they move them around a bit. So you have the wind issue right there. Second, they're off kilter right from the very beginning. They're not in the center of the canal, and so one of the things they start to do, and if you look at the track, they start chasing it. They start kind of you know overcorrecting, and going you know from one bank to another bank. And as they get closer to each bank, they get sucked in, and so you got to kind of move yourself out. But the other thing they do that's the critical thing is they start speeding up. They started making the ship go faster and faster. Mm. And and the reason they did that is because the faster you go the more responsive your helm is. If you want to turn your car, you know, you want to turn your car. If you're going really fast, just a little bit of a turn of a wheel turns your car. If you're going slow, you got to crank that wheel all the way over to do it. It's the same thing in a ship. The problem is ships steer different than cars. When you turn your car wheel, you turn the front of your car. When you turn a ship's wheel, you turn the back of the ship. And so you got to be very careful about hitting the banks. And what they looks like happened is overcorrected. They got so close to a bank, they they basically overcorrected. Turned it hard, or we, we don't know yet because we haven't gotten the vessel data recorder yet. Once we get that, which tells us what they were saying and all the recordings of the bridge, we'll know more. But it looks like they basically overcorrected. They did exactly what the Titanic should what the Titanic did, what they shouldn't have done, which was turn. If you're the Titanic, you should have gone into the iceberg. Head first, into the iceberg, you don't sink. Instead, what what Evergiven does is they should have gone basically right up against the bank. They should have brushed up against the bank and stopped. Instead, they tried to turn away and they went straight into the bank and and rammed themselves into Asia at 13 knots.
3: Wow. So how did they manage to release it after, I believe it was six days?
2: It was. It was six days. So they managed to get themselves stuck really good. I I mean, Ever Stuck stuck was a good nickname for her because uh, she was stuck really well. Uh, They were going so fast at 13 knots, that they they literally ran into Asia, uh, planted their bow into the side of Asia. Their stern kept going. Their stern went ashore in Africa, and they were kind of straddling the Suez Canal. And, and the Suez Canal called out their tugboats, but one of the things that the Suez Canal has not done is really prepare for these big vessels. So in the past, when vessels got stuck, they can call out their tugboat fleet, they can call out their vessels, and they can usually yank it off. 200,000 tons, these tugs pushing against this thing was useless. They were not going to move it. And so what they had to do was, was two things. One, they had to start dredging. So they had to start getting the dirt out of the way. They just basically had to dig her out. And, and if you ever you know, plant your feet in the sand at the beach, you know, in the surf, you know how difficult that is because it keeps filling back in all the time. And that's the same situation. They got these big high-capacity dredges. And so they were sucking out dirt to kind of get her out. At the same time, they needed something to pull her off. And so they hired a salvage company out of the Netherlands called Smit. These these uh, the, these Dutch companies have been doing this since the 1940s. And what Smit did is they brought in a big, huge, massive what they call anchor tug. And so what they did is they dredged out the dirt. So if you if you imagine the Suez Canal being 12 and six o'clock, uh Evergiven was stuck with her bow at two o'clock and her stern at seven o'clock. What they wanted to do is rotate her counterclockwise and get her back into the channel. So what they did is they dredged out the, 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 the left front of the vessel, the right rear of the vessel, and then they put a big tug on the stern, anchored it in the middle of the Suez, and just kind of power lifted it right across, and they dragged the stern off, and then they pulled her off the bank. Wow, just like a clock. Yep, they went <laughs> counterclockwise. They actually they moved it on two tides. Uh, so they, they, they had a, a spring tide, so they had a big tide coming in, and they were, they, were right, they were chasing this tide because if they didn't hit it by the end of the month, they were going to lose the tide. So on the high tide, they pulled her stern off first, got her into the channel. And then on the next high tide, using the ship's engine and the tug, they were able to pull her off the bank, pull her out of Asia and be able to get her up. And now she's sitting there anchored up in the the Great Bitter Lake, which is the lake in the middle of the Suez Canal and being held by the Egyptians for nine hundred and sixteen million dollars before the Egyptians will release the vessel.
3: Wow. So she's still there.
2: She has been arrested. Believe it or not, you can arrest ships. Uh, ships uh, are are similar to uh, humans that that they can be arrested, held for damage, and so the Egyptians in an Egyptian court filed a uh, injunction to arrest the vessel. They're, they're charging 313, uh, excuse me, three hundred sixteen million dollars for damage to the canal, uh, three hundred million dollars for a salvage bonus and then $300 million for disrespecting the canal. That's their <laughs> words. That's the words they use, disrespecting the canal.
3: Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so what What were some of the, uh, the impacts that this massive traffic jam had on the global shipping industry?
2: So if you're going to pick a spot in the world where – the worst place to have an accident, that's usually what I would be when I'm driving a car. That's the, like, the worst place you can be. This is Ever Given. She she picked it. I mean, she, <laughs> you could not get much better than where she went. She managed to pick, you know, the Suez Canal was, was was expanded in 2015. So part of the canal has dual lanes. Uh, but she found the one part of the canal, and there's about half the canal is like this, where not only is it a single lane, but it's the narrowest part. And, and at 1,300 feet, the canal is maybe 600 feet wide where she did it. So she managed to shut the canal. Now, normally, okay, you close a waterway, not a big deal. But 12% of the world's trade goes through this canal. And so you're talking about, you know, by the time they freed her up after six days, there was 450 ships waiting to get through the canal. And Lloyd's of London estimated about $10 billion worth of trade goes through the canal on a daily basis. And what this has is is, it's kind of like a domino effect. So the, the situation we're seeing today with, you know, we're seeing shortages in manufacturing goods right now. You know, if you're trying to build something and you go to a home Depot or a Lowe's or something like that, there's not a lot on the shelves right now. We're trying to catch up from COVID because of the, you know, and everyone's ordering things online. And so we're, you know, shipping's trying to catch up. What this has done is the same exact thing. Mm. It's created a shortage because now the ships couldn't get to Europe or Asia for a week. And now they're all piling in like rush hour.
3: Oh, wow. So at the end of the day, if you had to blame one person or thing, it could be inc- it could be a concept uh, that is to blame for the ship getting stuck on the Suez Canal. Who or what would that be?
2: Well. On board a ship, it all comes down to the ship's master, the captain. I mean, he or she is ultimately responsible for the actions on the vessel. So, for example, when the, when the Evergiven entered the canal, they take on board what's called Suez Canal pilots. So you take a pilot on board, and a pilot's like a caddy. You know, the caddy comes, you know, if you lose the the golf game, it's not because of the caddy, it's because of you. You, you know, you can listen to the caddy's advice, and you may not take the caddy's advice, or you may take the caddy's advice, and you win or lose. Or he can give you the best game you've ever played in your life but the caddy provides you know the excuse me the pilot provides this the advice the problem is that we don't know yet who was giving the orders on the bridge captain's ultimately responsible it all falls on him but we don't know if the pilot was telling the the, the helmsman to turn we don't know if they were telling them to speed up but no matter what the captain can overrule everyone the the, the saddest part about this accident that you would never talk about this if it is if the ship had slowed down, if the ship had not sped up, if if they had not gone in the canal, if there was going to be a windstorm, for example, and waited a few hours to go in, we wouldn't have known. And so even if it's a mechanical failure, no matter what, basically when there's a shipping accident, it comes down again to human error many times. Again, if 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 William Murdoch on the bridge of the Titanic had just said, straight ahead, run into that iceberg, again, the ship doesn't sink. Jack doesn't get killed, and you know, uh, you know, we we don't have a a, a award winning Oscar movie. <laughs>
3: Fabrizio lives. <laughs>
2: <laughs> he's going to get killed by the t- he's going to get killed by the stack. Anyway, that character, that, there was no way that character was getting out of the movie. You know that you knew he was not going to make it out of the movie.
3: Well, thank you so much. We're going to have to discuss this, uh, you know, internally because this might shift things a little bit, but thank you so much, Sal, for joining us today and helping us, you know, get clarity on this crazy event.
2: Oh, it's a pleasure to join you. And it, it is a crazy event. It's a unique event. And I think it yeah. shows it shows uh, how much we are susceptible to forces outside our own control in something as simple as a ship going through the Suez Canal and now making goods expensive for all of us.
3: Okay. And now I'm here with producer Amanda Lund to discuss Sal's guest expertise. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Alarmy. Wow. That was Great. And we got a little, uh, just we dipped our toe a little bit into the Titanic, which was exciting. I know. And it's just so great to have a maritime expert in our back pocket, because I have a feeling we're going to be calling on him again. (laughs) So true. So many uh, tragedies or disasters happen on boats. It's unreal. (laughs) Yeah, that's your Miami perspective. (laughs) I wish I had known him growing up. That would have like saved me a lot of anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, he he said so much, and I couldn't believe that ultimately he was kind of. It looked like he was pointing his finger at the captain and uh, the pilot. Ultimately, well, it really, was the captain. I mean
4: this captain pilot dynamic has always fascinated me since we did Halifax and he put it in he finally contextualized it in a way I could understand that the captain is the ca- like the big the big guy and the pilot is like the caddy. So it, that that makes more sense to me being like the pilot is for the area has maybe more expertise on that, but the captain is the one making all the decisions. So we may have gone a little bit easy on the captain.
3: <sighs> I know I, I I'm kind of with you. Um, I, I, I just really love that analogy. You know what it's making me think about too, is like usually a caddy, works with the golf course so they know the course a little bit better than if you're you know a guest golfer at the course
4: that's right that yeah so i think i I think we maybe missed a beat there but the other thing that um he said was that ships can be arrested (laughs) and you know that got my mind uh
3: racing (laughs) I know. You're you're imagining a massive ever given in our alarmist jail, which Amanda, you're the producer. You understand, you know, the economics of our show. Can we afford something that big? <sighs> I were I I think
4: that might send our um guards over the edge. <laughs> uh so I I really don't know. The garden gnome obviously is a little bit more Economical to keep in the alarmist jail, but what if we move the alarmist jail onto the ever given? Now
3: we're talking. <laughs> now we're now she's got her producer hat on. <laughs> I, I, it's almost like bad ship, bad ship.
4: <laughs> yeah. Okay, you
3: want to give the ship a a finger wag, perhaps, but. Um, No, I'm with you. I mean, just hearing Sal talk about how it really is more of a, you know, man, not man-made, but just human error. Human error, yeah.
4: Because we kind of went a little bit more zoomed out with it. And we were talking about, uh, you know, global trading as a whole. But really, lots of huge ships pass through and do not
3: get stuck. So what specifically here... Went wrong. Now, what I like about you saying that we should possibly send the Ever Given to the Alarmist Jail is that it encompasses the massive size, the massive scale of this ship. And that is also a problem, right? It's like, yeah. why, are these sh- why are they pushing it so far? So perhaps we do send the Ever Given and everyone inside of it. Oh, <gasps> the moment including the captain including captain and but i'm assuming the pilot was also on the ship perhaps they were just on yeah i'm assuming the pilot was also on the ship probably i think we should do it amanda and i'm okay with transferring everyone you know just making the ever given the alarmist jail for now until we can build a bigger jail.
4: okay i love that (laughs) idea so you're gonna set the garden gnome
3: free Garden Gnome is going to, yeah, Garden Gnome's getting out. (laughs) I just want to see a, 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 like, a drawing of of the Garden Gnome on its first day out of the Alarmist jail. I want to follow him along. Oh, he's got
4: baby's big day out. He's going to have a new lease on life.
3: Okay. I'm going to call it Garden Gnome. You're free. Yippee! Ever Given. You're going to the alarmist jail. Uh-oh. Deputy Chris is going to be emailing us. I can just feel it. Okay. I love this so much because
4: it's like there's the alarmist jail, but then you zoom out and you don't realize, but it's on the ever-given.
3: <laughs> okay. Well, we have we have more interviews. We have more guest experts. Let's let's hop to it. We've got a lot to do, Amanda.
1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at
3: airbnb.com slash host. Today we're speaking with David S. Reynolds, a distinguished professor at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. He is also the author or editor of 16 books, including his current biography, Abe, Abraham Lincoln in His Times. Let's hear what he has to say about the assassination of President Lincoln. Get started. Hi, Professor Reynolds. Thank you for coming on the show.
5: hello, Rebecca. Very nice to be here.
3: (laughs) So can you start off by giving us a, a brief summary of Lincoln's early years and how he got into politics?
5: Yeah, well, he was born on the frontier and had less than one year of backwoods education. Uh, He was largely self-taught because um, he was insatiable about reading and and learning and everything. Uh, But he was born in Kentucky. Then he moved to Indiana and moved to Illinois. Uh, And when he was in Illinois, he uh, became uh, a lawyer. Back then, you didn't have to attend law school. He apprenticed with a lawyer, uh, with another lawyer, became a lawyer for about 23 years. But at the same time... Uh, In the 1830s, he uh, entered local politics, state politics, Um, and he was elected for four terms to the state legislature, Uh, so he served in Illinois, and then he went on to serve in the U.S. Congress for one term. Uh, That was in the late 1840s, and then in the 1850s, he became so alarmed over the slavery situation that he ran for the U.S. Senate a couple of times. And even though even though he didn't win that, those elections, uh, he became quite famous for his debates against a pro-slavery person, Stephen Douglas. And it was those debates in 1858 that really catapulted him to, to fame. Uh, although he was still a dark horse and he was kind of cho- chosen uh, as the dark horse candidate really in 1860 for the presidency and he won, uh, that election largely because he was viewed as kind of a moderate and also largely because of Abe. That's the title of my book. Uh, he didn't like the nickname Abe, but that's how the, how the public loved him as honest Abe, old Abe, uncle Abe, the Illinois rail splitter, the, the average, uh, the average sh- shrewd common man in rolled up shirt sleeves and, the uh, Wielding an axe uh, in, on the frontier, that kind. Of
3: thing. So, just a month after Lincoln's inauguration for his first presidential term, the 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 country entered the Civil War. I, I know that by the 1860 election, you know that of course was a a, a hot button issue. Um, the uh, the issue of slavery was, and uh, what was Lincoln's stance on it, and how does that shift after the? insurrection that started the war?
5: His stance, as was the stance of the Republican Party at that time, was that slavery should be left alone where it existed already in the slave states, but it should not be allowed to expand into the Western territories. Why? Because once you started to let it expand, then you'd have more and more slave states uh, in the West, and the representation in the Senate and the House would be completely on behalf of slavery. And also, the Southern states had dreams of uh, taking over Mexico and Cuba, Central America, and making even more slave states. So he insisted on no spread of slavery whatsoever. Um, he also insisted on one other, other thing which uh, triggered the Civil War, he says, "Well, these states who have left the union, because uh, a total of eleven states uh, in the South formed their own supposed nation, the Confederate States, um, they cannot occupy federal property. The forts, uh, there are federal forts down there, like Fort Sumter, Fort Pickens, uh, several forts. And as soon as they the South attack, attacked uh, Fort Sumter, then at that point, he says." This has to be war because I'm. We're just not going to allow allow them to take a federal fort.
3: Now, can you give us some background on John Wilkes Booth? What is his connection to the Confederacy?
5: Oh sure, yeah. Booth was born in Maryland, and uh, he was uh, he became a very very famous actor, sort of the whatever the Brad Pitt of his day or something. <laughs> he was. <laughs> He was considered wow. the, yeah, yeah, he was considered the handsomest guy in America. Wow. And, yeah, and, and the ladies uh, flocked to his uh, to his performances and, and so forth. He, he was from a very famous uh, acting family. His father, Junius Brutus Booth, had been a, uh, was a really, really fine Shakespearean actor and kind of an over-the-top actor. Uh, But still very, very good. His brother, Edwin Booth, John Wilkes' brother, was both a wonderful, subtle actor and also um, pro-Lincoln. Now, John Wilkes Booth was not pro-Lincoln. He was, uh, obviously, he was a Southern white supremacist who um, really thought that Black people should remain in slavery And he uh, was totally disgusted, appalled when Lincoln was reelected in 1864. And he says, and at that point, he really began to think about assassination. Um, And his acting melded with his um, assassination plans because he was someone who really got so totally involved um, in his acting performances that he would sometimes a, literally wound uh, someone in a sword fight. He might almost smother uh, Desdemona as a, when he was Othello. And he, he, his father had done this kind of thing um, as well, but but he uh, took it to the nth degree. So he really absorbed himself into his acting roles. And the fact that he, he kills Lincoln in a theater... Um, and just just before he did uh, did that, he told someone in a hotel. Uh, he said, "You should really go to Ford's Theater tonight. There's going to be some wonderful acting there." <gasps> he, he, so <laughs> so in a sense, yeah, in a sense, he he was playing a role, his greatest role, his dramatic role.
3: Oh of, boy, he was a method the, a- actor,
5: <laughs> a real me- Yeah, almost <laughs> beyond method acting, if there is such a thing. But um, he uh, uh, really thought he was killing a tyrant. And he hissed uh, when, when he killed Lincoln, he uh, jumped to the stage 12 feet and uh, he turned to the crowd with his dagger. And he's, he hissed "Sic Semper Tyrannis, thus always to tyrants, you know, I killed the tyrant and he felt so good about killing the tyrant. So, uh, yeah.
3: What, what was his, um, uh, you know, involvement well, first of all, what was the Know-Nothing Party, and what was Booth's involvement with them?
5: The Know-Nothing Party is, was a, a very popular party during the 1850s, um, and uh, Booth uh, was was involved in that. Um, it was an anti-Catholic um, party and also um, anti— Irish uh, or anti-European party as well. And uh, they elected a lot of uh, what we would call white Anglo uh, white supremacists, Protestant white supremacists. Uh, and, um, and, and it was a very, very nativist, nativist and, and very narrow uh, kind of party, very prejudiced, very biased there was quite a lot of violence, too, uh, anti-immigrant violence and riots and so forth. And, yeah, Booth uh, de- definitely was involved in that, uh, although he was even more strongly anti-Republican. Back then, the Republicans were the liberals and the Democrats were the conservatives back back in those days. So, And he was very, very much anti-Lincoln and anti-Republican. Okay. So... At
3: what point did booth then you know decide to come up with this uh, these plots to kidnap the president? This is before before he decides he's going to assassinate the president. Um, was he recruited to to be a part of these kidnapping plots and how if at all was the Confederacy secret service involved?
5: Well, he definitely met. In Canada, in particular, with Confederate agents, um, was he hired by the Confederate government? Um, we cannot say. I don't. I wouldn't go that far. Um, there were so many different assassination threats against Lincoln. Lincoln kept a cubbyhole that was called "assassination letters." And uh, yeah, assassination letters. And he, 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 uh, and then one day Lincoln was riding on his horse and, uh, suddenly there was a shot and his, uh, tall hat was shot off his head. Someone was aiming for his head. So assassination, uh, and, and and he, he once said, if someone wants to assassinate me, they're going to find a way of doing it. He kind of had a laissez faire, um, attitude toward it, but, uh, Yeah, Booth did meet with some Confederate agents. He certainly identified with the Confederacy and with the the South, uh, absolutely. Uh, We don't know to what extent he was actually under hire or something like that by the Confederate government, but um, he definitely represented the Confederate point of view. And as far as the kidnapping, that's a plan that evolved really about, uh, oh, I'd say about nine months before the assassination, where he wanted to intercept Lincoln as Lincoln was driving in his carriage out of town, which he often did to go to the soldier's home, which was a place that he went, intercept him, and then uh, either take him south and hold him hostage in exchange for prisoners uh, and, you know, kidnap him and, and, and do that, uh, or use him uh, as some other uh, leveraging means, and probably ultimately to kill him, but uh, at least temporarily to, to kidnap him and hold him hostage. Um, however, and he actually went out one evening, I think it was in February 1865, and Lincoln was supposed to be passing by, and, and, and uh, Booth was ready to kidnap him, but Uh, Lincoln changed his mind uh, about that particular trip and didn't go out that night. So, yeah.
3: He just wasn't able to catch him, uh, essentially. Yeah. Um, After Robert E. Lee surrenders, right, uh, Lincoln gives his last public speech and addresses a crowd gathered outside the White House. Booth was also present. Uh, He was part of the crowd and is quoted as saying, this is the last speech he will make. Now, aside from the obvious, which is that you know General Lee surrendered, what was it that made Booth Booth's plan go from kidnapping to assassination? How, where's that flip?
5: In that speech, which was sort of a ca- which were really casual remarks at, at the White House from a window, and there was a crowd below. Uh, Lincoln was the first p- president who publicly called for the vote. The vote. The vote for African-Americans. Uh, and uh, Booth uh, was, was happened to be among uh, the listeners there on the crowd, and he, he just muttered, he says, that means, I don't like to use the word and the N-word, but he used the N-word, that means N-citizenship. He says, now I'm, now I'm going to put this through now, and now I'm going to get rid of, of, of Lincoln. And then, uh, lo and behold, uh, you know, uh, three days later, when Lincoln is at the theater, Booth, who had access to the theater because he was so famous, uh, just went up and and crept up behind Lincoln and, and shot, shot him in the head. Shot him from behind. He was he just couldn't stand the idea of African Americans having the vote. The right. Vote. So
3: it was technically the war wasn't really over did booth think that did he actually think his actions could change the result of the war or was it more of a a personal vendetta he just had to you know take 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 on
5: his his plot was to kill lincoln while um someone else was killing the vice president who was andrew johnson at the time and then somebody else was going to kill uh, the Secretary of State. And so the, um, the balance of power would have gone to, uh, I believe, the Speaker of the House or something like that, if, if they'd all been killed. And he really wanted to throw, uh, not necessarily to, uh, he knew he couldn't end the war because the war, Lee had already surrendered, but to throw the Northern government and the Washington government into total chaos into kind of a total kind of anarchy. Uh. And then who knows what might've happened if, you know, um, because the guy that was supposed to take over, I forgot his name now, but um, wasn't particularly well known as, as a leader or anything like that. And he really, Booth really hoped that then at that point, the South could somehow take advantage of the immediate weakness and chaos, and confusion of the North.
3: Now, how were Lincoln's spirits on the day that he was assassinated on April fourteenth, eighteen sixty-five?
5: Well, it's both in a way tragic, but also in a way comforting, uh, in the fact that on his last day, he actually had a, a very pleasant and, and, and good good day. Washington was celebrating because of the victory of the North. There was a lot of celebration. In the morning, he met his son, Robert, uh, who had been serving with uh, U.S. Grant. uh, And Robert had been at the surrender of Robert E. Lee to U.S. Grant at Appomattox. So Lincoln heard about that and had a very nice breakfast with Robert. Then after Robert, he uh, had a very promising cabinet meeting. Um, he did tell about a dream he had had, uh, the night before about being all alone on a dark ship ship going, uh, in the fog to an unknown destination. So, and in retrospect, some cabinet members said, Oh my goodness, he was dreaming about, uh, you know, about what was going to happen, but he kind of told mm-hmm. his dream. He wasn't really that worried about it. And he, he didn't particularly want to go to the theater, but he had sort of been obliged to go. He um, had told the newspapers he was going to go, and he, he was someone who felt close to the people. He knew the people would expect him to be there. Mary, his wife, didn't particularly want to go either, but she had a headache and stuff. But they said, well, we'll go anyway. Meanwhile, his bodyguard, uh, Ward uh, Hill Laman, he was out of town, and he, he had warned him, please don't go out, go out in public. And he saw the Secretary of War, Edmund Stanton, and Stanton said, please don't go. And uh, Lincoln said, look, you have this guy Eckert here who's very powerful. He could go as my bodyguard. But Stanton made Eckert um, uh, reject to go to him because he really wanted to disincline uh, and to persuade Lincoln not to go, you see. So. Several people were warning him not to go, but he said, well, you know, and then he took a nice carriage ride with Mary. They had a wonderful ride. They talked over old memories and they said, you know, we should be happier now. They had lost their son, Willie, during the war. And, uh, you know, some 800,000 Americans had died in battle and everything. So he said, you know, we really should try to look up and be happy. So they had a very warm kind of loving carriage ride. Then he came back and, He uh, read his favorite humorist, Petroleum Nasby, with some friends. He was delayed for dinner for for about an hour because he was uh, reading popular humor. Then he had dinner Mm -hmm. and had a couple of calls. And so he got to the theater kind of late. But um, actually, it was the kind of, uh, it was a very lighthearted comedy. The equivalent might be something like uh, Seinfeld or Not as good as Seinfeld, actually. I mean, you you know, it was just just a very frothy, lighthearted comedy. And he was laughing, you know, laughing a lot. And um, he actually died probably at the very funniest moment because Booth, who was an actor, had acted in that play. It was called Our American Cousin, acted a dozen times so he knew every line by heart. And he knew exactly when the audience would be laughing the hardest. And he wanted that to be the moment that he made his entrance and he, he shot uh, Lincoln. So we can imagine that Lincoln was, was really laughing his head off when he was shot.
3: Wow. Now, did, did Booth find out about the, uh, Lincoln going to the theater that morning? How did, how did he find out that he would be there?
5: Booth? As an actor, picked up all his mail at the theater at the Forge Theater because he played there so often. That's where he picked up his mail. He had been waiting for the right moment. Um, he deeply regretted not having uh, shot Lincoln at the second uh, inaugural address on March fourth because uh, he was in the crowd. And at one point, Lincoln was going out onto the portico portico of the Capitol and passed close to Booth and Booth really at that point wanted to, to, and and sort of made a lunge toward him, but the movement of the huge crowd pushed him back. So he wasn't able to kill him at that moment. So, but he was always kind of waiting for the right moment. And then that morning uh, he had gone to the theater to pick up his mail and he saw a newspaper announcement that had been um, uh, 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 put on the wall and the president and uh, his wife and general grant, U, U.S. Grant will be here tonight. And he said, well, this, this is my time. So this is my moment. He uh, gathered together his conspirators. They met in the afternoon. Uh turns out Grant uh, um, couldn't make it. So uh, somebody else, uh, uh, Major Rathbone uh, and his fiancee were gonna be the accompanying uh, accompany, uh, the Lincolns to the theater. And uh, Booth um, arranged for uh, one conspirator to to go to Johnson's where Andrew Johnson was in the hotel and to kill him. And the other conspirator to go to the home of William Henry Seward, the uh, secretary of state and kill him while he was killing Lincoln. And then they were going to meet up afterwards and they were going to ride away. Well, what happened was that the guy that was supposed to kill um, Johnson went to the hotel, but he kind of chickened out at the last minute, didn't feel good about it. So he had a few drinks in the hotel bar and then he kind of went out in the streets and he, he threw his, um, his gun away and everything. And then the guy that was supposed to, (laughs) the guy that was supposed to kill uh, Seward uh, went to the house and, and pretended that he was a doctor because Seward, Uh, had fallen off a carriage and he had a a metal brace around. He was lying in bed, almost paralyzed uh, from an accident a few days before. And so the guy showed up and said, oh, uh, I'm the doctor's assistant and I'm delivering some medicine uh, for secretary Seward. And the maid was a little, what, you know, what's going on? And so she kind of let him in, but, and he went upstairs but he took his knife and really stabbed Seward in the neck, but the neck brace was made out of metal, so it deflected the, the knife. Now, Seward was still wounded, but he definitely would have been killed, you know, absolutely. But he was kind of saved by his neck brace. And then Seward's son came in and started wrestling the guy. He, the guy really wounded um, the son, but the son managed to shove him downstairs, and he left without killing Seward. And when, um, Booth, uh, he waited for the right moment and then he crept in the box. He killed, he shot Lincoln, but Rathbone, uh, who was there with Lincoln, with the Lincolns saw what was going on. And he, he lunged at Booth and Booth had a booing, huge booing knife and slashed his, uh, arm terribly. Blood was going everywhere. And yeah, the blood was going everywhere. And Mary Lincoln was screaming her head off. And Lincoln, of course, was unconscious. He kind of slumped forward because he got shot in the back of the brain, you know. And so he had a bullet in his brain. And, yeah. And and so Rathbone literally had to have a tourniquet put on his arm. Otherwise, he was going to definitely lose his, uh, his arm. And then Booth, uh, of course, uh, jumps over the edge. He was quite athletic, by the way. Um, and, but... But still, he caught his uh, spur in the flag as he went down. So he injured his leg on the way down. He kind of limped across the stage. He faced the crowd, said six semper tyrannis. Then he went out and there was someone waiting with a horse. And then he galloped away.
3: So at the end of the day, if you had to pick one person or thing, it can be a concept uh, that you think is to blame for the assassination of Lincoln. Who or what would that be?
5: Well, what it would be is white supremacy because um, I say that I said that because um, even in the North, Lincoln was attacked as a so-called what was called at the time a Negro lover, uh, you know, so someone who had far too great much esteem for 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 African Americans and and there were so it was really this kind of racism and I mean Booth was just he carried out what a lot of other people, even in the North, were feeling about Lincoln, that Lincoln was was too, uh, and Lincoln in, indeed did call for uh, citizenship and the vote for, for, for Black people. So uh, it was really that, and the way it got funneled through this actor who really believed that he was on a stage. And not only that, but in his diary, uh, it was It was a combination of this kind of white supremacy and this kind of uh, very intense kind of acting because in his diary as he was escaping, booth uh, uh, compared himself to these uh, assassins in um, Shakespeare plays and everything or, or so forth that had risen up against tyranny and actually were were pretty good people in the end because they had killed a tyrant and he said, why am I being hunted when uh, so-and-so in this play, uh, in fact, was, uh, was a hero, was a play? He killed a tyrant. He said, I, I, I should, you know, he was still identifying in his uh, mind with these kind of characters that he had played. Oh, yeah.
3: boy. <laughs> wow. Well, Dr. Reynolds, thank you so much for joining us today and, you know, helping us understand uh, who's to blame for the assassination of Lincoln.
5: Thank you very much, and I hope that everybody enjoys my book, Abe. <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, everyone is flock should flock to uh, the internet and order it right now. <laughs> With us today, we have producer Amanda Lund, hello Rebecca, hello Alarmy, and fact checker Chris Smith.
6: Hi, everyone.
3: What did you guys think about all of... I found that there was so much new information that Professor Reynolds kind of threw at us, particularly Booth's acting. Oh, my gosh.
4: Yeah, I I was uh, scribbling notes down, but he really sort of framed Booth in this light, and and it reminds me of, like, oh, my gosh, this is, like, a guy I know. This horrible, self-obsessed actor. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
6: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> have you got, have you guys ever worked with a real like method actor, like intense method actor?
4: Yes, I have. I, yeah. I, mean, I think in, like acting. So, yeah. school. Yes, yes. Oh yes. A hundred percent.
6: It's always so awkward um, because they're so not tethered to reality because um, as we all know, uh, he's not, they're not really the characters, you know?
4: Right. (laughs) I mean, that's what they say about actors. Yeah, you're just an actor. (laughs) Also, that John Wilkes Booth was the Brad Pitt of his day.
3: We did (laughs) not know that. I mean, I guess he was just extremely handsome, which honestly makes him even less likable. Like everything, the more and more you learn, like I, I already thought he was... J- very unlikable b- from what I knew about just the act, the little I knew about his acting. And the more- now all of this new information, it's like, oh, he's even worse. It just keeps getting worse.
6: Now, did we put up on the board method acting? I think we did, right? Actors
3: getting into politics is what we were. We, was- we did not put method acting on the
4: board. So, Because I was uh, going to le-
6: suggest, you know, and I, I don't know that we would have landed on this, but um, Professor Reynolds did imply as much that, Method acting gone too far was sort of a a could have been to blame in this scenario. You got the sense that Booth was just he got caught up and carried away, and he just got a sense that his his sense of the difference between reality and make believe, which is what the theater is, uh, was tenuous at best.
4: Mm. Yeah, I think we could have put method up. You're right. We did get actor's ego up. And we also put up, but we didn't go into this that much, suspension of disbelief. And it seems like Booth was sort of caught up in the oh, his own play of his own making. And he was sort of out of touch with maybe the reality of the situation. Right. Uh, that's such a good point. Yeah. And that being said, he also was extremely racist. Yeah. <laughs> that, <laughs> that may that may have trumped the method
3: acting. <laughs>
6: Yeah, I think that's Definitely. what we said during the podcast. And I, I, I think you're right again. <laughs>
3: well, because think about it. It's like as annoying as working with a method actor is. And, you know, you can't roll your eyes far back enough. If like at the end of the day, you say goodbye and you're like, he's like he or she is a nice guy or woman, you know, then it's like, all right. You know, they're a little annoying because they're super method, but they're They're nice. It's like, who would you rather sit (laughs) next to?
6: Who would you rather sit next to on a plane, a method actor or a racist? It's like you, that's not even a choice, (laughs) right? Like you'd take the method actor.
4: But God forbid it's John Wilkes Booth was both. um,
3: So does this change? You know, I think what we ended up discussing was that By blaming John Wilkes Booth, you're kind of getting both sides. The fact that he was that annoying method actor and the fact that he was a white supremacist.
6: Right. And not only that, but he was a white supremacist activist, I guess you would say, right? Like an extremist activist. Because um, there were people that were white supremacists at that time who didn't kill anybody. Um, You know, this guy tried to disrupt the entire government. So he sort of just his wretched beliefs as horrible as they are. Uh, he, he took it a step further by putting them into action.
3: Well, but I will say this, um, the, the culture of white supremacy, if there is no culture of that, then, then someone might not feel as emboldened to do, you know, such a, you know, malicious act or, or such a big act, you know, that, it's dangerous, I think, to, to just allow that to be like, oh, well, you know, they're not acting upon it, so, you know, who are they really hurting? You know, it's just how they believe. Well, no, it, 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 it really festers and, and it, it really helps embolden people to, to do these kinds of things. So I, I, I mean, I think that it is in a way to blame Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's
4: it's interesting because Professor Reynolds brought up that, you know, there were other assassination uh, plots and attempts. And if Booth hadn't have done it, it's possible, you know, now that Lincoln was talking about giving black people the right to vote uh, down the line, they could be citizens, that someone else would have stepped up to the plate. But for this particular plot, like there were a lot of assassination plots and like the kidnappings, even with Booth himself, that didn't work out and so I feel like one of the reasons why this one did work out is a combination of Booth's like racism and his ego and his like narcissism in a way made him just like fearless the fact that he thought he was in a play and he was like you know life is a stage and (laughs) I'm taking out this villain this tyrant like how they do in Shakespeare plays like that gate may have propelled him to actually follow through with the plot
3: yeah, it's his. It was his personality, and, along with the his idea, like ideals or yeah, or, or, ideology, know, ideology.
6: Yeah. yeah, I would agree. I, I I agree with you guys. I think that's true. One other thing, I think we missed out on that uh, professor reynolds brought up was that lincoln felt obligated to go see a comedy show and anybody who has friends who do improv know that feeling and so i just wanted yes. to throw that out there like sort of the op being obligated to see a friend's improv show probably should have been up on the board
3: yes i i totally agree Oh my God, that's so funny. It It is dangerous. You know what? If you don't want to go to see a show, don't go. You might get killed. <laughs> like,
6: I mean, anything yes. could happen. So don't do anything you don't want to do. That's so
3: true. Um, Although it
6: was nice to, one thing that I took away also, I took away a lot from uh, Professor Reynolds. But another thing I took away was that he died laughing really hard. Oh yeah, and that to uh, yeah. me that's a way to go, right? That's you're laughing hard, and then boom, the lights go out, and it's like okay.
3: There's a silver lining to that. I, I can see that, and the fact that he had a nice day, you know, it, it's it's like he said, it's tragic, but it's also you know, I don't know, it's what you can I guess hope for. <laughs> If you have to if you
4: have to go, uh, I don't know. I think I'd rather just die of old age in my bed.
3: I don't we're not going to die. We, I, we can't think of that. But would
6: you rather die of old age in your bed watching Golden Girls <laughs> right after a really funny Blanche line? That's that's the question.
3: Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and make sure to tune in next week. We will be discussing the Chinese Massacre of 1871.